There's perhaps no joint in the human body so critical to daily function, yet so cast aside as the humble elbow. It seems all the love of the upper extremity is reserved for the shoulder, the wrist, and of course, the precious hand. But what about the unsung hero, the elbow, completely left behind? Today, that changes. We now dedicate an entire main episode podcast to the ED diagnosis and management of elbow injuries. We explore the common search satisficing that too often occurs with these injuries, you know, the missed second injury. We review the high-yield physical exam maneuvers that we so often cut corners on. We clarify easy-to-miss x-ray findings. We open the world of vascular and neurologic and mechanical complications, and we help you confidently decide on disposition. Is this podcast going to be high-intensity, life-saving EM gold? Well, no. Will it help you prevent bad functional outcomes and chronic disability or a chart review by your chief? You better believe it. So, to help us become all-star diagnosticians and clinicians for our patients with elbow injuries, we have the mighty return of, you guessed it, Dr. Aaron Seal. Most of you know him from the incredible CASID course, or from speaking at EMU, or from the multitude of EM cases episodes, my fave being the one that we did on, on knee injuries, Dr. Seal. I hear that you're uh, actually speaking at the Essentials of EM this year. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, it's kind of a nice surprise, sure, and in, in, uh, in May, heading down to Vegas. Awesome. Um, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I told my wife. All right. And joining us for the first time on EM Cases, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce to you upper extremity expert orthopedic surgeon from North York General Hospital, Dr. Dale Dancer. Welcome, Dr. Dancer. Thanks, Anton. Happy to be here. Great. I understand that you've actually done some work up in the rural northern Canada. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? It sounds pretty cool. For about 10 years, I've been participating in the March of Dimes program up there. So we go up there and we see patients that generally are underserviced, uh, that wouldn't have the same kind of access to specialty care if we didn't go. And the ones that need surgery, we bring them down to Toronto and uh, get their surgeries done there. Great. You must have some really fascinating cases from up there, I'm sure. It's a different patient population for sure. Definitely different personalities in a, in a very positive way. Right on. Good for you. So before we get into the first case, if there was sort of an overarching theme or main take-home message for elbow injuries, what, what would that message be, Dr. Dancer? So for the purposes of uh, a discussion around emergency medicine, I would say we need to keep in mind that elbow, similar to the shoulder and the fingers, doesn't do well if immobilized for extended periods. And by that, I mean about three weeks. So most of the treatment that we choose for the elbow would be near completed in terms of the immobilization within three weeks. Another thing I would just sort of, shall we say, impart from the orthopedic surgery side to the emergency medicine side is just about all of the classification systems that we have in orthopedics. I don't think it's necessary for most emergency doctors to really memorize many, if any, of these classification systems. But most of them are worthwhile having a look at because they have an essential message or a learning point buried in there that's useful to carry around with you. And so if you can pick that out of the classification system, it can be very valuable. Oh, great. So as we go through the cases, we can do exactly that. We'll pick out the really key learning points for the eMERGE doc. 
from those classification systems. And Dr. Cial, any kind of overarching theme or kind of main takeaway points that we should come back to through the podcast, through the cases? Well, I, I think the cases are going to highlight a little more than just the typical cases we're used to seeing. So a lot of times, orthopedically, our our focus is on the few things that we see a fair bit of, and these commonly missed injuries get missed, such as like radial head is common, so we think about that. Olecranon is common in adults. Uh, a sublux elbow that pops back in, a distal biceps rupture. These are uncommon injuries, a coronoid process fracture, uh, uncommon injuries. Just as when we see patients with chest pain, there's typical stuff we see, but we always think dissection with older patients. We think of PE with, you know, for any adult with chest pain. We extend the differential and convince ourselves that it's not there. Whereas orthopedically, we sometimes just look for what we know and we miss the fact that something else might be there. So I think just having a, a broader differential as we approach these patients and think about if those are there or not will help us diagnostically. Yeah, I think that's a great point as a general rule for orthopedic injuries is that we tend to know just the common stuff. And, you know, most of us are pretty good at managing Coley's fractures in the emergency department, but then there's all those other fractures and dislocations and other tendon injuries that we really should know about, even though they're not as common, they can definitely lead to poor functional outcomes. So with those kinds of themes in mind, let's jump into the first case of adult elbow injuries. A 25-year-old female is running for the bus when she trips and has a right foosh. Uh, Not such a rare mechanism of injury, right? She complains of right elbow pain, and she's supporting her elbow with her left hand. Dr. CL, let's just kind of back it up a bit. In general, with a foosh, what injuries are you thinking about? Like, what's going through your mind just with a foosh right off the bat? A good orthopedic way that we've been trained is always think of life-threatening first. It's easy to sometimes concentrate on on a wrist or an elbow where the patient's complaining of, just make sure there wasn't some medical reason for the fall. This clearly is a mechanical fall. She tripped and fell. Make sure she didn't hit her head, hurt her neck, anything like that. But when we're just isolated now to to an extremity in her left arm after a fall, the force can come out anywhere along. Like it's just a it's just a chain. And a very common place, of course, is distal radius and wrist. Scaphoid in the younger adult, not so much in older adults. It can be at the elbow. For sure, you can have an elbow injury, as this patient has. You can have shoulder injuries. Older patients, when they just have a little small fall, they can have a rotator cuff tear just from a, a minor fall of trying to brace themselves. A posterior shoulder dislocation can occur. So anywhere along the chain, there can be a problem. And I think uh, a quick screen of the entire upper extremity, starting at the sternoclavicular joint and working down, it only takes a couple of seconds, but it just forces you to have a good, thorough assessment and make sure you don't miss that second injury. Absolutely. All right, so on exam, she's tender over the radial head. She's unable to fully extend her elbow, and her x-ray shows an effusion, a positive sale sign, and a posterior fat pad sign. So this story is pretty suspicious for an occult radial head fracture, right? So let's talk a little bit more about the nuances of radial head fractures. First, Dr. Dancer, let's talk about the mechanics of the elbow a little bit. So in general, what do merge docs need to know about the mechanics of the elbow? And in particular, why is the radial head fracture the most common elbow fracture in adults? There's a carrying angle of the elbow. There's cubitus valgus. When we fall, when we foosh, we tend to pronate our hand to put our palm down. You wouldn't typically fall with the back of your hand against the ground. That creates a moment, a force vector. So that puts a a valgus load on the elbow, which loads the lateral side. 
So we tend to see radial head injuries, medial-sided ligamentous injuries on the tension side. The other thing is that at the wrist, the contact with the wrist is mostly on the radial side. So when you foosh, the radius is soaking up most of the force uh, down the forearm. And it focuses it right there at the radial head. So that's why the radial head fracture is the most common fractures in adults. Can you tell us a little bit more generally about elbow mechanics and how understanding elbow mechanics can really help us clinically? So the elbow is not just a hinge joint that extends and flexes. The forearm also rotates. So there's pronation and supination. And it's important to check all of these movements when you're doing your physical exam. Talking about the physical exam, all too often we do a cursory physical exam for what seem like simple extremity injuries. So let's dig a little bit into the physical exam for radial head injuries a bit. We now know that there are four motions of the elbow, just as you explained, that we need to check for. There's not only flexion extension, but also supination and pronation. So Dr. Ciel, first of all, how do you check for supination and pronation properly? In a, in a patient with an elbow injury? So it, it will be expected to be limited. If they have a swollen elbow, it's usually going to be sore. The proper way to do it is have the patient have their elbows touch the sides of their body. And what that does is it locks their arms, uh, their upper arms, and it just allows forearm rotation. Uh, the easiest thing to do is to stand in front of the patient. You touch your elbows to your side and you demonstrate what you want the patient to mimic. So you sit there and you put your palms up and that's supination. And then you turn your thumbs in, so palms down, and that's pronation. And you ask the patient to do the same. And at the same time, you're comparing their left to their right. You know that they're trying. And you can you would expect with a radial neck injury, anywhere along the radius, especially like on the even mid forearm, but with, specifically we're talking elbows here, that with a radial neck injury, that's generally going to be impaired. With a swollen elbow, their flexion extension probably will be impaired as well. But specifically, you'll usually find that patients with a radial neck fracture will have pain that's worse with pronation and supination. They'll be tender over the radial head, which you can palpate. So laterally, the olecranon's easy to find, just superior and anterior to that. You can feel the, the lateral condyle. And if you just try to make a triangle with those two points, make an equilateral triangle, that's where you'll find the radial head. Uh, the easiest thing to do if you ever do it with a patient is do it on their unaffected side. Uh, say, I know this isn't the side you, you hurt, but you just poke around on the unaffected side. They don't mind you hammering away. And then once you're comfortable with where it is, you can then translate that over to the affected side. Uh, it doesn't cause the patient so much discomfort. After you've done it a half a dozen, a dozen times, you don't need to always do that. You can find this spot pretty easily. Great. So yeah, maybe people listening out there can try it on themselves. I like what you said about putting the elbows in against your body to check for supination and yeah. pronation. What I sometimes do is I ask the patient, to do exactly that and then ask them to do thumbs up with both hands. And then when they fully supinate, they should be able to point their thumbs parallel to the floor all the way 90 degrees. And when they're pronating, it should be pointing their thumbs towards each other parallel to the floor 90 degrees. And so checking for that, you can see exactly where, you know, how much pronation and supination right. limitation they have. Just to follow up on keeping the elbow by the side, the best reason to do that is that if you have a limitation to supination, you can't cheat if your elbow is at your side. Similarly, if you have a limitation to pronation, you're going to want to tend to abduct the arm uh, if it doesn't move all the way. So holding it by the side prevents that cheating. Those are great little nuances. Okay, so we, we've talked about how to locate the radial head. 
uh, in that sort of triangle area there, which uh, I do encourage listeners to try on themselves and on their patients. And once they've done it a few times, as you said, they'll know exactly where to look. And we've talked about supination and pronation. Anything else on, on physical exam in general for elbow injuries that we should know about? Again, trying to be thorough. So typically these radial head injuries occur, with, as, as Dale was saying, with a, with a valgus stress. So it means you open up the inside of the elbow. It's almost like a, a valgus stress of the knee affects your medial collateral ligament. Well, a valgus stress of the elbow affects what's called your ulnar collateral ligament. So we often don't palpate on the inside, but you could feel on the inside. You could gently try and see if you can stress it a little bit, see if it's sore. They'll have more pain on the medial side, which we often don't pick up and emerge. The other thing is, when you think, again, going beyond just the radial head, is what's attached to it is sometimes an injury that goes down the interosseous membrane and then pops out the weak link in the chain, which is the distal ulna. And there's a name for that called an Essex Lopresti injury. Again, uncommon, but if you saw it, it would just tell you it's a little more significant soft tissue injury that transfers down, and you'd want to make sure that the distal ulna is in joint, because if it's out of joint, that becomes more of a problem. I would just add, uh, since we mentioned Essex Lopresti, is that if you did encounter pain at the wrist, I would just be sure to immobilize in supination before they leave the emergency department. Mobilize in that's, supination, that's why is that? That's the stable position for the distal radial ulnar joint. And that would apply for any concern about uh, instability at the DRUJ. Great. Okay. So normally, you know, we'd we'd put a back slab on and they'd be immobilized in, in, neutral. in neutral. But if you're worried about the distal radial ulnar joint, then immobilizing them in supination is the right thing to do. Those are some great pearls about the Essex Lopresti, about how to check for supination and pronation properly, and about how to locate that radial head so you know exactly where to palpate. All right, so that's a bit about the physical exam. We're going to be coming back to the physical exam again through the other cases. Let, let's move on to x-ray. But before we get into the subtle findings of radial head fractures on x-ray, Dr. Dancer, why is it important for us in all elbow injuries to obtain a true lateral x-ray? And how do you actually tell if it really is a true lateral or not? The most fundamental reason is that uh, on a two-dimensional image of an x-ray without orthogonal views, you can't be certain that a joint is even located or, or not displaced or dislocated, uh, similar to a shoulder. Some of the findings with elbow injuries can be fairly subtle and there can be subtle malalignments that you would only pick up on one view or the other. In terms of how to tell if, say, a, a lateral is a true lateral, you should be staring right down the pipe uh, of the trochlea. So the capitellum and the trochlea should superimpose. You should see that nice hourglass or figure of eight appearance because you're sighting right down the thin bone between the coronoid and olecranon fossae, which is fairly flat, and you're seeing it on end, so it forms fairly uh, bright line on a typical x-ray. With elbow injuries, patients often can't fully extend, and when you send them for an x-ray, getting a good, true AP is often very challenging, particularly when they're immobilized. And so if it matters that you have a good AP, you may want to speak to your x-ray department about getting the best AP of the distal humerus they can get and the best AP of the proximal forearm rather than one lousy oblique view where you don't see either. So important to get a true lateral. It's easy to miss stuff if you don't get a true lateral. You know, sometimes we get an x-ray that is way off and I'm always reluctant to have to tell the patient to have to go back to the radiology department to get another x-ray, but 
I think that's probably important when you're really looking for some of these injuries you can totally miss if it's not a true lateral. Uh, and again, it's the, that figure eight hour of glass that you're looking for to know yeah. that it's a true and lateral. And I think that's a great point as well, is that we shouldn't accept substandard films. Sometimes that's the best the patient can do. And often the tech will write down best possible films that they'll recognize. It. But if you really want to fight for a better film, we're so reliant on x-rays for a lot of these decisions that we make that sending them back and just where I find it works better, walking down, explain to the tech what it is that you want. And they don't, they don't think that the, the wreck is coming with some degree of sarcasm. Like, come on, you can do better than that. It's a nice, you explain to them what you'd like and then be grateful for what you get after that. Um, but having that conversation, I think is very helpful walking down with the tech. Always a gentleman, Dr. CL. And despite what I said earlier about it being difficult to get a good AP when you're immobilized, it can be difficult to get a good lateral when you're not immobilized. So if you're in a lot of pain, it's positioning the arm that's often the reason why they're having a tough time. Putting a back slab on and then sending them back to repeat the lateral, you might have better luck. Yeah, and that actually goes to the, the point of if you have time and you can work it into the flow of your department is to treat the patient's pain before you even send them to x-ray. I think anybody with an upper extremity injury, wrist, shoulder, elbow, should have a sling before they go to x-ray. And one of the things like I often try to do when I'm working in ambulatory, I just put two or three slings in my back pocket. And as soon as I see the patient and I know they need one, I'll just flip one on. Uh, it's a great time saver. And you're going to be their favorite guy. And the I, nurses love you too. Everybody, yeah. I like that. You know, the, the senior residents who want to be like hardcore resuscitationists, they've got the push dose epinephrine in their back pocket. Dr. Ciel has a couple of slings in his back pocket. I love that. <laughs> so sometimes I find myself finding an effusion on, on x-ray and the patient's tender around the radial head, radial neck, and I assume that that's an occult fracture. And then sometimes I'll get a report back from the radiologist saying, well, there actually is a radial neck fracture that I missed. So sometimes these can be really subtle. What are the subtle findings to look for on x-ray for a radial neck fracture? I think you're absolutely right. Sometimes there's a very tiny cortical break in the neck that you only see in one view, typically on the lateral side, because when you have that valgus stress, it kind of gets compressed laterally. And it's a very tiny little lucency, very subtle. Uh, you may see a little tiny mushrooming where it just gets punched down a little bit. And it may not be on the, the lateral where we pay a lot of attention to or on the AP. It may just be on one of the oblique views. You just have to look. And what drives you there is the history and physical. That's why I tell residents all the time, look at the patient first. And then if you're really worried about something, you'll spend more time searching for that on the x-ray. But if you give a cursory glance at the x-ray, you see the effusion like you typically see. Then you go and see the patient. You don't see, you see that oh, there's nothing bad there. But you see the effusion, you don't really notice the radial neck fracture because you haven't been driven to look for it by their physical findings. So if you hear their story and examine them, you'll look at the x-ray better. I tell them it's, it's like looking for a pneumothorax. It's a hard thing to pick up on an x-ray. But when you think that's a 25-year-old with like right-sided chest pain, you're going to look really carefully for it. So I think it's better to see the patient first and then look on all four views. Don't just look at the ones where the, like the money views, the main views. Look at all the views for the one you're looking for and you'll be surprised how many times it shows up. Dr. Cial, the classic cognitive bias that makes us miss fractures sometimes is search satisfice bias. That's when you find one fracture and you stop there instead of looking for that second injury. So important in all of orthopedics. For radial head fractures, or in our case, suspected radial head fracture, what other injuries are you looking for to rule out that are commonly missed? So in that spectrum, when the radial head's involved, the things that I find that are missed are 
two things. First, people don't appreciate if it's a surgical radial head fracture, which is uncommon. So most radial heads, uh, or most radial neck fractures are non-operative. They're usually undisplaced, but you sometimes can knock off a radial neck. Uh, a radial head fracture that goes into the joint has an intraarticular component. If it's undisplaced, it's a good idea to immobilize it and have it followed up. If it's displaced, depending on where it is in the degree of displacement, angulation, uh, how far it's pushed down, uh, it may be surgical. Sometimes people pulverize the radial head. They're a little older, a little osteoporotic. They fall on it, and it's just it's just crushed. Like you see a distal radius in an 86-year-old who falls, uh, and they crush your distal radius. And we just go, oh, that's a radial head, and put them in a slab and follow them up in the minor fracture clinic. That clearly is an unstable injury. So, so just thinking about the injury that you're seeing, and if it looks like it's a more significant radial head fracture, just have a little more concern for, the, for the, what that injury really entails for the patient. The second thing that you should look for once you see radial head, and then just just look at, take, pay close attention to the coronary process. It's the proximal ulna, posteriorly the electron, anteriorly that little hook on the front is the coronary process. And if you ever see a little chip off of it, it means they probably subluxed their elbow. You can certainly ask by story. A lot of times patients will not tell you spontaneously, I think my elbow slipped out and went back in or my, my shoulder went out and back in. They won't tell you that, but if you ask them specifically, they will endorse it. They'll go, yeah, I did feel like it went out and back in. But often they feel stupid telling you because they think they won't, you won't believe them. So many times they won't tell you first off, but, but if you ask them, and if you ever see that coronary process, I mean, I've seen different numbers, 30, 50, 60%, it's associated with a sublux or a dislocated elbow. So when you start adding a, a radial neck injury to a coronary process, which is the anterior column, as they call it, then, and they had the sublux elbow, that's called a terrible triad. So just go beyond radial head, uh, look for that coronary process. I've seen a few cases, and, and again, I'm not trying to slag the radiologist, but our radiologists will miss them um, and not appreciate the significance of it. So, so it behooves it, I think, on our behalf, like a, for us to pay a little more attention, go a bit beyond just the radial head. All right, that's great. So whenever you see a radial neck fracture, um, you should really be looking at the coronoid process carefully because even just a little chip off that tiny little lip there um, – if there's one of those, then it could very well mean that the patient had dislocated their elbow, which is a much more serious injury. Right. Um, you should, should train your eyes to look at the coronoid uh, on every lateral x-ray that you see. Um, Great. So adding to the anterior sail sign, the posterior sail sign, the radiocapitellar line that we're going to talk about a little bit more later, add to that just to make sure you look at that coronoid process every single time. As a segue from what Dr. Sayal was talking about a moment ago to just bring up the Mason classification of radial head fractures, which applies only to radial head fractures and not to radial neck fractures. But the type 2, uh, which is essentially the threshold for surgery that we might use, is 30% of the surface area of the radial head involved or more than 2 millimeters of displacement. As somebody who has had a radial head fracture, I can tell you that the most painful part of the experience is the hemarthrosis. And this would apply to both radial head or radial neck fractures, that if you have a hemarthrosis or might be expected to have a hemarthrosis, a back slab is an excellent treatment and it's not harmful to put a back slab on just about any of these injuries for a few days. All right. So 
for the patients then that have a radial neck fracture who don't have much of an effusion, who don't have too much pain, not much swelling, uh, you don't expect much swelling, a sling is fine. Uh, and that's what we've traditionally been doing. However, I think that's a great point that if they're in excruciating pain or they have a huge effusion on x-ray or a massive amount of swelling on exam, uh, those are the patients that you might want to consider putting in a back slab for a short period of time. Another option is also just out of, there's a fiberglass product, which you make a removal post to your slab. You can hold it on with a tensor bandage. Um, and then they can have that comfort and just once or twice a day, if they're having a shower, they can just, whatever gentle range of motion they can get out of it, great. And if it's too uncomfortable, they just keep it in that back slab and they'll follow up and then have it removed. And uh, Dr. Cial, I understand you have kind of a nifty memory aid for surgical indications for radial head fractures. Well, exactly. Again, the radial heads, so the ones that go into the joint, it's something that a, a surgeon told me a long time ago, and it was just 33, 33. So it's three different numbers. So 30 degrees of angulation, three millimeters of displacement of the fragment, or 33% of the surface area of the radial head. So if it's a large fragment, if it's angled, or if it's displaced, that makes us more concerned. Any one of those three. So uh, I don't know if there's a name to that classification, but that's what one of the surgeons suggested to me that would make you more concerned about the injury. Uh, and then at the end of the day, it's often clinical. So if they're really functioning quite well with it, they may not get an operation, but they certainly should be considered for surgical opinion, of course, uh, if they have those. Great. I love it. The 33, 33CL. It wasn't, I wish I came up with that. It wasn't mine. So Dr. CL, you had mentioned some of the important injuries to look for in any patient with a radial head fracture, particularly the coronoid process and elbow dislocations. Let's say in our 25-year-old patient with a foosh who can't fully extend their elbow and who has an obvious joint effusion on x-ray, you see a radial head fracture and you see a coronoid process fracture. So that little lip of the lecranon in the front of the elbow, that breaks off. So why exactly is this important not to miss, this little coronoid process fracture? That little fracture is, a, is an indicator of a more significant injury. Often what it means is the patient did sublux their, their elbow. And the sublux elbow or a dislocated elbow, it, it's a little different than a dislocated shoulder. It's a significant ligamentous injury that takes a long, long time to come back from, typically. So if you see that little small piece, it doesn't look like much on an x-ray, but these little, these little avulsions are significant soft tissue injuries. And the soft tissue we're talking about is the ligament, and that could certainly be a very significant injury to the patient. All right. So if a patient tells you that they had a pretty high energy mechanism and that they felt something pop out, but when you see them, it's back in place, but you see a little coronoid process fracture... You can assume that they've had a dislocation or a subluxation, and that implies that they've had massive ligamentous disruption and it's a pretty serious injury, yeah? Yeah, and if they tell you it's out, they'll usually be able to tell you it went back in. Like They'll usually tell you both sides of that. Like I felt it slip out and go back in again. doesn't mean there's always it was a, the joint was subluxed or dislocated, but often that's the case when they tell you that. The way I would think about this is that step one is the valgus force on the elbow. Often next you're going to get a radial head injury, but you may not. The next one to go is going to be the ulnar collateral ligament and the joint is going to open up on the medial side. 
that's what sets you up for coronoid process fracture. And so it's the humerus that knocks off the coronoid. And although the elbow may not have frankly dislocated if there is a fracture, it often would have. And, and you're almost certainly dealing with a medial collateral ligament complete disruption if you're seeing a coronoid fracture. Okay, so that tiny little bone that gets knocked off basically equals probable big disruption of the medial part of your elbow in terms of the ligaments there. And again, if you don't, if you just look for the effusion, sometimes where we look at the x-ray first, we just look for the effusion. You don't see an anterior sail or a posterior fat pad. And you're like, oh, there can't be anything there. So you may give up the chance to see that little tiny coronoid because you assume there's no fracture because there's no effusion. Sometimes, as you said, you open up the medial side of the elbow and all the fluid leaks out. And three, four, five days later, they've got a like, like huge bruising around their elbow because nothing, the, the hemarthrosis didn't get contained. So the x-ray doesn't show the effusion. Interesting. Okay. Small bone, big injury. <laughs> All right. That's uh, a little bit about when to suspect a coronoid fracture, when you see a radial head fracture and when you have a valgus stress. And Dr. Ciel, we had mentioned that an isolated coronoid process fracture can be a sign of a subluxation or a dislocation. The dislocations are usually pretty obvious on x-ray, but how do you assess if the joint is actually in place or not on the x-ray? So a subluxation, of course, is a partial dislocation. On the lateral view is the best way to see that we're talking about the ulnohumeral joint, that the distal humerus is seated properly in the ulna. It can be a little tricky if you don't have a true lateral and see it. It could be off by a millimeter or two. It's t difficult sometimes to pick up on elbow x-rays, like specifically on plane films. So another reason why a true lateral is so important. Absolutely, yes. Similar to the mortise view in an ankle, you kind of want the joint space to be symmetrical on all sides. So around the trochlea on the lateral view, if there's an asymmetry, if the joint space doesn't look contiguous and symmetrical, you should be suspicious. That's great. I love that pearl. So we've picked up a few great x-ray pearls so far. One is to always look for a little coronoid process fracture because that can be an indication that there's a much bigger medial ligamentous injury. And this now that to assess whether the joint is in place or not, whether it might be slightly subluxed or not, is on the lateral view to look at that space around the trochlea. And it should be equidistant and smooth, just like you'd look at an ankle mortise. You expect that uh, the spaces are pretty equal all the way around. So that's the coronoid process fracture. Now, Dr. Seal, you had mentioned the terrible triad. From a surgeon's perspective, what is so terrible about the terrible triad? So again, the terrible triad is the radial head fracture plus a coronoid fracture plus a dislocation or subluxation of the elbow. So when you see them in follow-up or if it's missed, what, what are the kind of sequelae of, of this terrible triad? Calling it terrible is to treat it with respect, to recognize that uh, it needs to be identified and not missed, that every single one of these needs an operation, that an important part of that operation at minimum usually needs to be reconstituting the lateral column, uh, which means either fixing the radial head or replacing it, and also usually repairing ligamentous injuries. The coronoid fracture may or may not need surgery but it's an important part of the spectrum of the injury. 
And again, as we're talking about this, just to put it in perspective, you're still going to see way more isolated radial head, radial neck injuries than you will combos of, you know, radial neck plus coronary process, radial head plus coronary process, or terrible triads. So the end of the spectrum where we have to be more worried about are the ones where you see the coronary process and you then obviously you're suspected of this terrible triad because their outcomes are going to be more more difficult. But what you, you're not missing three of these a shift, that's for sure, like right, coronary process fractures, but just open your eyes. It's just like you think of dissection. Every time you see chest pain, it's just like you think of, you know, headaches and what are all the bad causes of headaches. When you hear somebody with an elbow injury, just add this to your list. And just if you see it, it just makes you a little more worried. All right, let's jump into our second case. A 22-year-old female gymnast comes into your ED after missing a high bar while training for a competition, and then she falls onto her right outstretched hand, another foosh. She has severe pain in the elbow and obvious deformity. Not a simple radial head fracture kind of thing. So she comes in with her coach, who's placed a sling around her elbow with a towel, and when you remove the sling, she's holding her elbow at about 45 degrees. You take a look at her elbow from behind and you see an obvious posterior bulge there. And you've seen this before. You're thinking, I bet this is a posterior elbow dislocation. So let's talk elbow dislocations. We know that about 90% of elbow dis dislocations are posterior or posterolateral. So we'll limit our discussion to these dislocations for the purposes of this podcast. Now, a straight up posterior elbow dislocation without a fracture is a relatively simple beast. It usually only requires closed reduction, which we'll talk about soon. On the other hand, an elbow dislocation with accompanying fracture makes this dislocation suddenly a complex one, and it usually requires surgery. And these fractures can sometimes be easy to miss. So let's dig into the nuances of posterior elbow dislocations. First, Dr. Cial, in what situations would you suspect a posterior dislocation besides the usual foosh? Fall in the outstretched hand, typically it's a significant force. Hyperextension of the elbow is the typical mechanism that causes it. If you see that in someone who's 85 years of age, they're more often to have a fracture because their bones are weaker. So you often will see this, in, as you've done in this case, a 22-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old um, with a significant force. I remember seeing a 45-year-old guy trying to do a bicycle kick this past summer after the World Cup. He was somewhat inspired, uh, but probably not the most intelligent decision. Uh, and with his hyperextension injury, he had a, a posterior elbow dislocation. So uh, it's a significant amount of force typically, not often seen in kids. We don't talk about kids here, but kids often are more likely to fracture, but occasionally it can happen in kids. Uh, so typically the younger adult, 20s, 30s, 40s. All right. So that makes sense. I mean, if your bones are osteoporotic, you're going to break a bone before it gets dislocated. Younger adults, they can very well dislocate their elbow without breaking anything. It's the combination dislocation fracture that we really need to be worried about. Dr. Dancer, let's talk a little bit about physical exam. So usually the posterior elbow dislocation is relatively obvious clinically if it's out at the time that you see them, but sometimes they're not so obvious and a thorough elbow exam is important regardless. 
What do you look for on physical exam in a patient who has a foosh, a lot of pain at the elbow, and you're thinking this could be a dislocation? I think it's important that you document uh, the neurovascular exam. And the main reason is that if you don't, prior to a reduction maneuver, and they have deficits afterwards, you'll regret not having recorded it prior because you will own whatever their deficits are. In terms of how to detect a dislocation clinically, I mean, obviously, inspection of the elbow, you've given us clues uh, that make it fairly clear that there's an asymmetry. If you look at an elbow from the posterior aspect, I think it's important to recognize that, that that's the view you want. If you're standing in front of the patient, you may not see a posterior dislocation. If you palpate the epicondyles versus the tip of the olecranon should form an isosceles triangle. And if they don't, something's out of place. It may not be a posterior dislocation. It may be subluxed either laterally or or medially. And then obviously the x-rays. Great. Yeah, I like that triangle rule. So it's the triangle between the olecranon and the medial and lateral epicondyles. Correct. And again, if you're not used to seeing it often, just check the opposite side. Always compare the patient's other side, see what their normal elbow triangle looks like. Once you do it a handful of times, you'll, you'll see it and automatically recognize that that's a dislocation before you ever see the x-rays. And in the, the skinny 20-something gymnast, it'll be a lot easier to see than in the 45-year-old obese patient. Absolutely. You had mentioned neurovascular injury. I want to talk a little bit about nerve testing. So in a posterior elbow dislocation, it's typically the ulnar nerve. Uh, that you're looking for. Dr. CL, could you go over for us how to rapidly and effectively and easily test for nerve damage in the hand for an elbow injury, for example? Sure. So we'll talk about uh, the three nerves that are involved. So radial, ulnar, median nerve, and then motor and sensory components of them. So as a quick screening exam for upper extremity injuries, these 1960s references. So thumbs up as if you're hitchhiking. So just put your thumb up and see that's radial nerve. Peace. Uh, again, 1960s reference, so ulnar nerve, where they're second and third digits, they just separate them and s- test the ulnar nerve function. And then you can do power to the people, which is a Mexico City, 1968, just a little fist, make a fist. Uh, and that covers for most upper extremity. For elbow specifically, you can get called the anterior interosseous nerve is the most commonly injured nerve. So you do an AOK sign. So just an AOK sign we add for the elbow injuries. But if you want to do all four for all, that's fine. Okay, so for the power, again, it's thumbs Thumbs up up. for the radial nerve. It's the peace sign, and so that they actually keep those two fingers apart uh, against resistance, which is the ulnar nerve. There's power to the people, which is the median nerve. Uh, And then there's the AOK. Which is the anterior trust, is a branch of the median nerve. nerve. But I think it's the most commonly implicated in elbow injuries. And you may not pick it up if you just did power to the people for elbow injuries. So if you do all four for every upper extremity injury, that would suffice. Okay. And that um, takes all of about 10 seconds, eh? Not even. Having them do it in both hands, uh, I find helpful because, uh, you know, sometimes there's a language barrier. You don't know for sure if they understand uh, what you're asking them to do. And so it might not be a deficit. They may just not understand. So if they can't do it on the opposite side where you don't suspect an injury, that's not a nerve injury. That's something else, right? And this isn't specific to elbow injuries, but just throwing it out there that you can extend your IP joints of your fingers with the intrinsics in your hand without having any radial nerve motor power. 
So uh, you wouldn't be able to extend the wrist or the MCP joints without your radial nerve, but you can extend the fingers and it can fool people sometimes if they see finger extension thinking that radial nerve is working. For sure. And then the sensory side, the, the, the pure radial nerve is the first dorsal web space. Pure median nerve is the tip of the second finger palmarly and pure ulnar nerve is tip of the fifth finger palmarly. So those three are pure radial ulnar median. So again, quick exam, first web space, tip of the second finger on the palmar side and tip of the fifth finger on the, on the palmar side. That'll take you like three seconds. Usually these posterior elbow dislocations are pretty obvious on x-ray, but as we had mentioned before, sometimes the elbow can posterior dislocate and then come back in, or it can be subluxed. And again, that subluxation can be pretty difficult to pick up on x-ray. Um, and again, I love that pearl of treating the space around the trochlea like you would the space in the uh, ankle mortis. Um, that you want it to be nice and smooth and even all the way around the trochlea. And if it's not, you should suspect uh, a subluxation. All right. So we've diagnosed a posterior elbow dislocation. Our patient is, let's say, neurovascularly intact, but perhaps not for long because his elbow's out of joint. So we want to reduce this dislocation relatively soon. Dr. Seal, can you run through for us the most common reduction technique for posterior elbow dislocations? And after that, we can maybe run through some alternatives if that one doesn't work. To reduce any dislocation, muscle relaxation is the key. Uh, once you've achieved muscle relaxation, it makes it a lot easier. If it's a pure posterior dislocation, having somebody stabilize the distal humerus and really just traction is often enough. Sometimes you can take your fingers, you have to hook the olecranon if the triceps is a little bit in spasm, just to pull it down and bring it around. And that can help ease reduction. If it's a posterior lateral dislocation, if it's out to one side, you need to correct the medial lateral plane first. Think of the humerus as an axis, and there's an axis to the proximal ulna where they meet. And if they're not lined up properly, you pull them forward, they, they won't meet. So you need to correct in the medial lateral plane, make it converted to a pure posterior dislocation, and then pull it forward. Okay. So just going over the, the details of the traction counter traction. So I like that point about first making sure that it's reduced in the medial lateral plane. And again, if we think about that isosceles triangle uh, of the olecranon and then the medial and lateral condyles, we want to get that triangle back into shape. And then we can think about bringing the posterior olecranon forward. So with the traction counter-traction technique, you usually need two people, right? So one person immobilizing the humerus with the elbow flexed at about 30 degrees. Then you apply traction to the distal forearm with the forearm supinated. And then if that's unsuccessful, applying a bit of downward pressure at the mid forearm, which will help unlock it. And then you could even get your hand behind the olecranon to bring that forward as well. And do appreciate if there's a fracture with it, if you have a fractured dislocation, uh, it's, it's sometimes it's more challenging. That fragment can sometimes make it difficult and it may be irreducible and emerge. So if you see a fracture on your x-ray, I, I don't think it should stop you from trying if you see a, a fragment that's often it's dislocated, uh, but don't be surprised if you find it more challenging to reduce. 
one comment just to make is we spent a lot of time talking about the coronoid in the setting of, you know, how the dislocations happen. The coronoid is also your enemy when it comes to producing that elbow. So when that elbow is posteriorly dislocated, the humerus is sitting anterior to the coronoid and it needs to hop over in order to reduce. We keep going back to the ankle. So the famous tip to get a posterior ankle dislocation reduced is to bend the knee. And I think that's what you're doing with supinating the forearm. You know, that's the, the equivalent of relaxing the tissues that you need to relax. And 30 degrees short of full extension is also the same idea. You're trying to optimize the laxity to be able to clear that coronoid over the trochlea. Great. I love that. So three things to think about when you're doing these uh, reductions of the posterior elbow dislocation, keeping the elbow flexed at about 30 degrees, making sure that you reduce in the medial lateral plane first, and then thirdly, making sure the forearm is supinated while you're doing it. And if you go by those three tips, it should be pretty easy to put it back in. And one put pitfall would be to avoid compression in the antecubital fossa in a dislocated elbow while you're reducing. You're risking having structures entrapped in the joint by doing that. All right. So you want to have your assistant holding up a little bit higher on the over the humerus. Um, and then when you apply your, your traction, you want to really be a little bit more distal. So just keep that antecubital fossa clear so that you're not crushing the nerves and the vessels in there. So let's say you've tried your standard traction, counter-traction technique, and you just can't get that bone over the coronoid, over that little lip there. Are there any other tricks you can try? For us, patients are normally asleep and, and supine. Their elbow is pointed toward the ceiling. The reduction maneuver that I would try if it's been difficult is with an assistant holding the arm in 30 degrees full extension, perhaps a little bit of traction as well, standing from the poster aspect of the humerus, hook the fingers of both your hands anterior to the condyles, trying to avoid compression in the antecubital fossa, and put both your thumbs on the tip of the olecranon at the junction with the triceps and use the leverage that you can produce between your fingers and your thumb to push the olecranon up and over the trochlea. Great. I love that little trick. So like with all reductions, uh, we should do a post-reduction film. And it goes back to those principles that we were talking about before in terms of seeing that smooth symmetric space around the trochlea, just like we would on an ankle mortise, um, and then looking for any coronoid fracture, looking for any other fracture fragments uh, that might turn it from a simple dislocation into a complex fracture dislocation. Right. And then also don't forget that when they come back, now that they're no longer sedated, make sure you do a post-neurovascular assessment. Absolutely. All right. So there's posterior dislocations and there's posterior dislocations with fracture, which makes which turns them into a, a complex injury. Um, from the ED perspective, we're going to be putting these patients in a back slab at 90 degrees regardless. When do you want us to call you from the emergency department? Like, in other words, which are the patients that may need surgery semi-urgently, like in the next day or two? 
So I agree that uh, in both of these cases with either a simple or a complex dislocation, a back slab at 90 degrees is the emergency treatment. That elbow is likely to stay stable. In terms of when we want to hear about it, it's quite different between the two though. With a complex dislocation, you know, as long as the hour is reasonable, a phone call helps us to triage that uh, appropriately as it is likely to need some kind of surgical treatment. With the simple dislocation, you know, the, the time frame is, is seven to 10 days. That helps us to ensure that the elbow has remained stable over that time frame and to get range of movement going on time. So we often get patients in the emergency department asking us how long it's going to take their injury to heal. Uh, for posterior elbow dislocation, what's the kind of range in terms of healing? So for me, I don't usually permit stretching and extension beyond 30 degrees of full extension until roughly six weeks following the injury. So guaranteed, they're not going to have full extension minimum that length of time. And it'll often take them another four to six weeks to fully regain that extension. It's in some cases, they may never, but in most cases they would. So we're talking uh, two, three months until they, yeah, until yeah. they gain. Yeah. Again, profound ligamentous injury. Okay. So, wow. So this gymnast is not going to get back to doing gymnastics probably for a good two or three months, eh? Uh, I would say for uh, weight-bearing exercises, it's likely longer, maybe four months or longer. All right, let's jump into case number three. A 72-year-old man was shoveling snow off his driveway when he slipped and fell onto his left elbow. When you assess his elbow in the ED, there's a huge amount of swelling and he's very tender at the tip of the elbow. You send him for an x-ray, which shows an obvious olecranon fracture. So here's an older gentleman with a low energy mechanism olecranon fracture from a direct blow to his elbow. It's pretty classic. So olecranon fractures are usually relatively obvious from a quick clinical assessment and the x-ray. So what I want to concentrate on are some of the nuances of the physical exam, the plain films, and the ED treatment. So let's start with the physical exam. Dr. CL, for olecranon fractures, I understand that it's important to check for the integrity of the extensor mechanism, kind of like how it's important to check for the integrity of the extensor mechanism of the knee when you're faced with a patella fracture or a query tendon rupture. First, why is it important to assess the extensor mechanism of the elbow? And second, what's the best way to test the extensor mechanism on physical exam? Right. So if you see an obvious gap of two, three centimeters, probably don't need to test it. It's not intact. It's torn. It's pulled off. But if you have an undisplaced or minimally displaced olecranon fracture, these patients can disrupt their extensor mechanism or the triceps inserts, uh, just as with some undisplaced patellar fractures, patients may not be able to extend the knee. They may have actually injured the mechanism, the extensor mechanism around the fracture. So therefore, you need to test it. If you try it, just you have them extend their elbow with the typical way with their arm up in front of them, gravity just pulls them down. So you think they've got extension, but they don't. So you need to do it with gravity eliminated. And the best way to do it is to have the elbow basically pointing north-south, pointing up-down, and have them extend so that their hand, their arm, as it moves, is actually parallel to the floor. 
Um, so it's hard to t- describe it this podcast, but essentially if they bring their, 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 their elbows up in front of them, their forearms in front of their face, and now they're just extending the elbow straight out. Now gravity's eliminated and you can actually check for elbow extension. So you need to do it with gravity eliminated. Okay. So rather than, rather than bringing the forearm up and down against gravity and with gravity, you're moving the forearm parallel to the floor. Exactly. Got it. Okay. We'll have some pictures of that in the in the show notes as well. And Dr. Dancer, anything about uh, the importance of the extensor mechanism of the elbow? You have to think of this patient population and how elbow extension power affects their life. So just simply getting out of a chair is very difficult to do if you can't push on your hands. And so uh, maintaining their independence can be substantially affected if they can't do that. Many will use a walker. They may be dependent on the walker. If you rob them of elbow extension, they can't walk. It's a big problem. And so this uh, heavily influences decision-making about treatment for us. So that's a little bit about the physical exam and about the importance of the extensor uh, mechanism. Um, And again, if you've got a hugely displaced olecranon fracture, you can assume that the extensor mechanism is blown, uh, but it's for those ones that aren't so displaced, the ones that aren't displaced at all, where you really want to check that extensor mechanism to see if it's intact, because if their extensor mechanism isn't intact, it can mean they, they can't get up from sitting, can really mean a, a functional impairment in the long run. So Dr. Dancer, besides a well-padded posterior plaster splint and sling, what else do we need to know about the treatment of these fractures? Like which, which electron fractures are likely to require surgery, for example? For me, the important factor is what is the likelihood that the fracture is going to displace further uh, than its presentation? So with many fractures, there are opposing muscle groups attached to the affected fragment uh, that can kind of both pull in opposite directions and things don't move too much. With the olecranon, there is only the triceps and it's only going to pull. With a displaced olecranon fracture, the natural history of that is either without surgical treatment to heal with a uh, fibrous non-union, so to re-establish the extensor mechanism, or to migrate proximally and heal to the posterior humerus where you lose all of your extension power. And so for me, the chance of one versus the other heavily colors my decision about surgical treatment. So loss of extensor mechanism, that would be an important factor. I don't have a a hard number in terms of displacement to quote you, but I would say roughly five millimeters of displacement. I'm worried that that might not heal with a fibrous union. And then other things that are absolute indications for surgery, for instance, would be subluxation of the elbow. All right. So really three things we should be thinking about. Disruption of the elbow extension mechanism, significant displacement, you know, if it's one or two millimeters, it'll probably heal fine uh, without surgery. If you need a number, it's somewhere around five millimeters. And then the third thing is uh, subluxation of the elbow. Now that brings up the question, we were talking about detecting subluxation of the elbow by looking at the clear space around the trochlea, but of course, all electronon fractures are intraarticular by definition. And so that clear space is going to be all messed up in most of these fractures. How do you detect subluxation in a patient with an olecranon fracture? 
So it's actually amazing when you think about it that we don't see uh, subluxation more with olecranon fractures. It's uncommon to see. But you would see an asymmetry in how the coronoid and intact portion of the olecranon uh, articulates against the anterior part of the trochlea. Okay, so we've got the segment that's kind of off. Yeah, not looking at that. So not looking at the segment, we're looking at the other part and seeing whether that has a nice, even, symmetrical, clear space. That's right. All right. Again, some of the key concepts with an olecranon fracture are that the integrity of the olecranon is essential for triceps strength and function of the elbow, which is really important because you won't be able to get up out of a chair, for example, without that happening. Again, similar to the patellar function that's necessary for extension of the knee, and that if the patient has a significant amount of displacement of a fragment around five millimeters, or they've lost that extension mechanism, or they've subluxed the elbow, those are all indications for surgery that uh, a simple fracture that's not displaced can usually heal without surgery. You know, sometimes I see these olecranon fractures where the segment looks like it's miles away from the rest of the elbow and it looks really nasty and the patient's elbow is really swollen. And my gut instinct is like, this patient needs surgery and they need it like now. Which patients really, besides the obvious like open fractures, for closed uh, olecranon fractures, which patients need surgery like in the next day or two? So short of an open fracture, there really aren't olecranon fractures that are very emergent uh, that need uh, an urgent phone call. We can get to them within seven to 10 days without harm. Unless it's an open fracture, there really aren't any olecranon fractures that need emergency surgery and they can wait for a week. You don't have to wake up the orthopedic surgeon in the middle of the night, no matter how displaced it is. Let's jump into our final case. An 18-year-old young man was out with his buddies on a Saturday night skateboarding after smoking some pure Canadian, now legal marijuana and drinking a couple of beers. He fell off his skateboard and thinks he landed on his forearm. His x-ray in the ED shows an obvious mid-ulna shaft fracture. Your astute resident remarks that the mechanism doesn't sound like one for a classic nightstick fracture and asks you if this might be a Montegia fracture dislocation. So, Dr. Ciel, I understand that there's a nifty mnemonic to help remember the injuries of a Montegia fracture as opposed to the Galeazzi fracture. You know, it's easy to mix up these two Italian guys. Can you run through for us the fume mnemonic? Sure. So the, the principle being that mid-forearm, it's a, it's a ring structure. It's a paired bone system like the tib-fib, and therefore you typically don't injure at one spot. You can fracture one bone and have a dislocation elsewhere, and where the dislocation occurred depends on whether the radius or ulna is the fractured bone. So fume helps understand that you can either have fracture of ulna or radius. It's either called Montegia or Galeazzi, and the dislocation occurs either at the elbow or the wrist. If you remember fume, 
Then you say fracture of ulna is called montigia, and at the elbow, the other bone, the radial head, is dislocated. The corollary then becomes, it's not fracture of ulna, but radius. So a fracture of radius is not called montigia, but galeazzi, not at the elbow, but at the wrist, the other bone, the distal ulna is out. So with a montigia fracture, it's an, uln, it's an ulnar fracture. At the elbow, the other bone, the radius is out. With a galeazzi, it's a radial fracture, typically distal third of the radius, uh, and the drudge is out. So that's just the way, remember, you may have heard of something called mugger, which is M-U-G-R, so Montigia ulna galeazzi radius. That tells you which bone is fractured. Uh, you then have to go and try to figure out where the dislocation occurs. So fume helps because it fills in all the gaps on one side, and you have to do the corollary for the opposite. Okay, so fume, the F is for fracture, the U is for ulna, the M is for Montigia, and the E is for elbow with the other bone, the radius, being dislocated. Spot on. Just if you ever see an isolated mid-shaft forearm fracture, it's a red flag. 25 to 40% of the time, that second ligamentous injury is missed. You just have to recognize that that does not happen by itself. Think, think of it as the exception. Uh, the nightstick fracture can occur. Someone puts up their hand to sort of block a, a police officer with a nightstick is a traditional story, and they take the blow on the ulnar side, and you may have an isolated ulnar fracture. So that can occur. Uh, but when you see it, think really hard about uh, Amontigia. Got it. All right. What about the x-ray? Now, the ulna fracture is usually pretty obvious, but the radial head subluxation is often pretty subtle. Dr. Ciel, what tips can you give us when it comes to picking up a, a subtle radial head dislocation on x-ray? There's a line called the radiocapitella line. And on every view of the forearm, on every view of the elbow, a line that bisects the radius should intersect with the capitella. And essentially, you just need to look for it every time. In adults, if you see a dislocation, there's probably there's going to be an ulnar fracture. Occasionally in kids, they can just pop out the radial head and not actually have the ulnar fracture. They may have a bowing fracture, maybe a plastic. So you may see it in isolation, but that's exceedingly rare. Absolutely. Okay. So just putting together all the great x-ray plurals we've talked about, we just talked about the radiocapitellar line to assess for radial head dislocation. Uh, we've talked about the anterior sail sign and the posterior fat pad sign. Uh, we've talked about really every x-ray, we should be looking very carefully at the coronoid process because even a tiny little chip off the coronoid process could indicate instability. The asymmetry uh, on the AP, looking for asymmetry of the joint opening on the medial or lateral side, just like we look at the ankle mortis for symmetry, we want to look at the clear space around the trochlea to make sure that that's nice and symmetrical. And then finally, to know that you have a true lateral, uh, we want to look at that hourglass or figure of eight sign. Well, that's four cases for you. Radial head fractures and the terrible triad, posterior elbow dislocations, olecranon fractures, and Montigia fracture dislocations. But I want to step back a bit and talk more generally about when we need to pick up the phone and call for an ortho consult in the ED. So Dr. Dancer, in general, which patients with elbow injuries do we need an immediate consultation with orthopedics in the ED for? open fractures, irreducible dislocation, neurovascular injuries, compartment syndrome, subtle subluxations or residual instability. I'm not so sure is a 
phone call in the middle of the night. It's certainly one that I think we'd want to know about. So with the elbow, it's just like any other orthopedic injury, really, in terms of the you know immediate picking up of the phone, open fractures, compartment syndrome, neurovascular injuries. And then I guess the big take-home point is these patients shouldn't be immobilized for weeks on end because, as we said at the top of the podcast, at about three weeks of immobilization, that's when you really end up with a long-term stiff elbow, yeah? That's right. So in our four cases, we've talked about fractures and dislocations, uh, but we didn't talk about soft tissue injuries or you know isolated tendon injuries. Are there any soft tissue slash tendon injuries around the elbow uh, without fractures or dislocations that we should really know about? Ones that aren't sort of like, you know, rice and follow-up family doctor kind of soft tissue injuries. You're right. You should think about operative soft tissue injuries as really the the operative word, no pun intended. And if you think on the anterior aspect, what's commonly missed, uh, uncommon injury, is a distal biceps rupture. And distal biceps ruptures are different than proximal biceps ruptures. So the, the proximal biceps rupture that gives you the Popeye sign typically is treated non-operatively. It's often degenerative, older person. The distal biceps rupture happens from somebody who's supinating, flexing, usually maybe 30s, 40s, Dale, roughly, probably. Yeah, and they're trying and they to show group, their muscles. They're try- or, or they're actually actively doing something, they're lifting yeah. something, and they feel a pop, and it's distal. And if we just take an x-ray and don't see an effusion, the, the gut reaction is to say, oh, it's a soft tissue injury, and not actually feel for something called a hook test, which needs to be done with the elbow and supination, and you try to hook the distal biceps, see if you can feel it. Almost exclusively a male issue, very uncommon to see it in females, a distal rupture. Well, the, uh, the obvious thing for me is if your listeners need any kind of assistance in remembering whether it's proximal or distal that are more important, from our perspective, uh, in order to get the distal biceps where it belongs and inserts on the radial tuberosity, um, after about three weeks, it gets very difficult to bring it down. And it may not be possible to get it to where it's going without flexing the elbow past 90 degrees. Now try to do an operation on the front of the elbow with it flexed past 90 degrees. It becomes next to impossible. So there's a door or uh, a door. There, there's, a, there's a window of opportunity that closes uh, after a distal biceps rupture quite quickly. I have done them out to about six, seven weeks, but it gets very, very difficult. And beyond that, you're starting to look at having to harvest tissue from elsewhere in the body. So if that wasn't enough, uh, um, let me rephrase. Hopefully that's enough. uh, Hopefully that's more information than your listeners need to remember that it's the distal ones that need to be treated uh, relatively urgently within three weeks. So the distal biceps tendon rupture, um, that one... Uh, I've seen a bunch of times, you know, the young guy uh, is trying to lift something really heavy and uh, he feels a pop. And on exam, it's that uh, hook sign where he, where there's an absence of being able to hook that tendon, which we'll have a picture of in the, in the show notes. Um, and those need surgery relatively quickly. Um, but the, I got to admit, a triceps uh, tendon rupture, I probably missed a bunch because I can't remember ever diagnosing one. Could you just go through for us what the mechanism of injury is and what you'd find on on physical exam for a triceps tendon rupture? 
less common than the distal biceps. But if they if they have pain in the posterior aspect of their elbow, make sure they can fully extend their elbow because otherwise it has the same complications that Dale was chatting about earlier about if they have a displaced olecranon fracture, you can't extend. Uh, and it's like missing a quads rupture where the muscle just retracts and it becomes really difficult to pull down late. Mm, that's a so great point. So these are uncommon injuries. They're soft tissue injuries, uh, but they're operative soft tissue injuries that we have to keep in mind. Okay, yeah. The biceps tendon one I knew about, you know, the young guy who's lifting some massive heavy thing and suddenly feels the pop and there's a lot of bruising at the elbow anteriorly and uh, that hook sign, uh, which we can show a picture of in the show notes, that's key to diagnosing yeah. that. But the triceps tendon rupture, I probably missed a whole bunch because I can't remember ever diagnosing one. What, what would be the mechanism of injury? What are you looking for exactly with that? They feel a pop in the back of their elbow, just like you sometimes would feel with Achilles. They feel a pop in the back. They would just sort of pull and they have some usually pretty, fairly acute pain. Think of it also with the guy, there's still the odd patient that they're taking steroids, big over, and they just, their, their muscles are way too big for where they're supposed to insert. Often you'll see it in like football players, linemen of biceps ruptures, triceps ruptures, like professional football players who are really just overbulked. Similar to an Achilles tendon injury, it would be typically an eccentric contraction. And so a, a common mechanism, for instance, would be a younger, very muscular patient who has bones of steel and has a kind of a foosh injury where they're falling and put their hands out to break their fall and they're hypertrophied triceps muscles pull so hard that they evulse off the uh, olecranon. Similar again to an Achilles injury, you can sometimes palpate a gap. Uh, you certainly should have an effect on extension power. Okay. So if you have a big muscular guy who has, has a foosh, he hasn't broken anything, but he's tender uh, right at the insertion of the triceps at the elbow, and uh, maybe he's got weak extension, uh, you really need to suspect it. And then in terms of the ED management, is it putting them in a sling and then again, relatively quick follow-up with the orthopedic surgeon for surgical correction? Correct. I'm, I'm happy that you left out sending these patients for an ultrasound because I find that the way ultrasounds are reported for these injuries usually just makes the diagnosis and treatment more difficult. And, and often they're Clinically, you can tell. Like oh, it's it's a clinical diagnosis. It's a clinical diagnosis, and, right? And, they, and I don't know why they call they call them musculotendinous injuries all the time, or high grade partial tear. Uh, you know, and functionally, they're like they're a complete tear. Yeah, right. If it's a positive hook test, it's torn. Right, and and I right. And the purpose Just like of, the Achilles, I mean, it's if it's a right, yes, positive Thompson, it's don't send torn. Achilles for ultrasounds. It's yeah. There's no there, there's no upside to it. Yeah. I think we over-rely on them. And exactly as Dr. Dancer has said, they're an imperfect tool. So if we're not so comfortable with history and physical, we order a test. The test isn't perfect, but it gives us an answer. We rely on that answer uh, with more, more than we should. Uh, and the history and physical often is enough to tell us the answer. And typically that ultrasound isn't of help, is not of help to the orthopedic surgeon who's going to follow them up. Or even worse, it's a hindrance. Ban the ultrasound to orthopedic <laughs> surgeons. <laughs> All right. Well, since we decided to name the podcast 10 Pitfalls in the Diagnosis and Management of Elbow Injuries, let's go through 10 pitfalls. Number one, failure to test properly for pronation and supination range of motion. 
So testing for pronation and supination range of motion with the elbows held tight against the trunk may reveal a subtle radial head or neck fracture or an SX lapresti fracture dislocation. That's with the drudge involved. Pitfall number two, accepting an inadequate AP x-ray view of the elbow if the patient is unable to extend the elbow enough. Consider a separate x-ray view of the humerus and a separate x-ray view of the forearm to better assess the integrity of the bones of the elbow. Pitfall number three, immobilizing the elbow for more than three weeks. That's a no-no. Prolonged immobilization may lead to chronic elbow stiffness and long-term functional impairment. Pitfall number four, failure to look for a second injury after diagnosing a radial head fracture. Specifically, you need to look for a coronoid process fracture and subtle signs of subluxation by ensuring that the clear space around the trochlea is symmetrical and smooth. Pitfall number five, assuming no dislocation if the joint appears in place in the ED. Some patients with elbow dislocations will have reduced spontaneously prior to your assessment. Usually the patient will recall a sensation that the joint popped out and then popped back in again. The x-ray may be unrevealing. However, all elbow dislocations are associated with major ligament disruption and thus require rigid immobilization even when the x-ray is normal. Pitfall number six, failure to position the forearm in supination before posterior elbow dislocation reduction. It's important to place the forearm in supination to allow the trochlea of the humerus to more easily pass over the coronoid process of the olecranon during closed reduction. Pitfall number seven, failure to assess the integrity of the extensor mechanism for patients with olecranon fractures. Patients with olecranon fractures who are unable to extend their elbow against resistance are very likely to require operative intervention if they're to regain their elbow extension for the long term. Pitfall number eight, failure to assess the radiocapitellar line for patients with ulna fractures. Montegia fracture dislocations are unstable injuries and they're managed operatively, while isolated non-displaced ulna fractures are generally managed non-operatively. So scrutinize the x-ray carefully for radial head subluxation for all patients with ulna fractures. Pitfall number nine, assuming that urgent operative intervention is not required for all biceps tendon injuries. While proximal biceps tendon ruptures are usually managed non-operatively, distal biceps tendon ruptures are usually managed operatively within two to three weeks of the injury. And finally, pitfall number 10, routinely ordering ultrasound imaging for suspected biceps or triceps injuries. Ultrasound imaging is not required to diagnose biceps tendon rupture or triceps tendon rupture. They're diagnosed clinically. Ultrasound reports may even be misleading and are not recommended by our experts in this setting. All right. Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. I learned a whole lot preparing for and speaking to uh, both of you. There's a mountain of pearls and pitfalls that I think our listeners will take away. So thank you again for joining us on EM Cases. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you.